when I got to Hollywood in the late 1980s, horror was something that actors didn't want to be known for. In fact, it was an embarrassment to have it on their own resumes. Uh, it's nothing like it is today. Every major star is doing horror now, but it was not like that. And so being a lover of the genre, when I went in there, um, when an audition would come up for say, Wes Craven or Toby Hooper or George Romero, um, I was very eager to go in there. And when I did, I knew their movies. Um, you know, I, I knew um, how they got started. And that was a great conversation starter, you know, because most actors, they didn't watch it. They didn't want to watch it. It was basically this much better than doing porn. Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Ted Raimi is a badass. There, I said it. We all know it. If you're a horror fan, chances are you know and love him. For decades now, he has been one of the go-to actors in the genre. He's one of those actors who shows up in a movie and you hear a collective outcry from the audience of something like, awesome, or, oh, I love that guy. Often supporting roles, and often scene-stealing supporting roles, Ted has become an audience favorite for his roles in films like Spider-Man 1 and 2, the classic Candyman, and Wishmaster. His lead role as a serial killer in the pitch-black film Skinner showed audiences that Ted could carry a movie, and he sure as hell did. It's a mesmerizing performance. And though Ted is always engaging in his on-screen work, it's also the way he tirelessly champions the horror genre that makes him a great ambassador for fans. Ted wears his horror badge with great pride, and he knows horror inside and out. He should. Anyone seen Skinner knows what I'm talking about. Ted and I talk on his formative years in the Detroit genre film scene, moving to Los Angeles and making the life-changing commitment to a career as an actor, his love of old-school actors and the exciting and challenging differences to creating a character for a video game, which he does in the new hit horror game, The Quarry. And there's also a story about a police car that's bonkers and had me equally shocked while also laughing out loud. You know Ted Raimi. You love Ted Raimi. Who doesn't? Ladies and gentlemen, Spill Your Guts is proud to present the man, the legend, Ted Raimi. Ted. What's up? Hello. How are Hello, you? Hello, Kevin. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it's a uh, nice morning here in uh, in Michigan. It's very warm. It was raining all night, so it's super duper. Where, where, What's that? Where exactly in Michigan? I mean, I don't need your address or anything, but like, what part of Michigan are you? Oh, uh, uh, east side. East okay. side, Detroit. Detroit, like city like proper detroit like or did you go both i grew both i grew up in the city and the suburbs both okay um as a kid little kid i was mostly in detroit and then we moved out to the burbs and then i went back to school in detroit though uh i went to the university of detroit university of detroit okay yeah um and got a good got the best theater education of my life there you what you went there for theater yes okay. i did um and it's a tiny little department the entire department only had about nine people in it. Oh, wow. But you could major in it. And it turned out, you know, we, we, uh, 
we, you know, we had most of our, half of our graduates went on to work a good deal. And which is an, probably one of the best records for any theater department college in the world, even though there's, so there's maybe 12, 13 of us, maybe 14 of us at most at any given time. Um, and it wasn't an advanced program. It was just, you know, theater department and uh, so, yeah, me, let's see, Anita Barone uh, got quite big and uh, David Patrick Kelly yeah, graduated right. a couple of years before I did. And uh, so we had we had some 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 dudes who were working. So it was pretty cool. That is cool. I, I, well, you know, Jeffrey Combs, uh, you guys have worked together. Jeff sure. was on the show a little while back and he was talking about that, how it's sort of interesting when you go to a, a theater school you know, that one of the great things about that is kind of the, the people you meet, the friendships you form in there can be just as valuable in some ways as the education aspect of it, which is, of course, important. But, but you know, he talked about friends he made there that, that have all gone on to have their own careers and you reconnect and you and that support system and the importance of that when you finish taking a program. Like yeah, that. that's right. That's right. I mean, there are other I went to other theater departments too. the New York University was the opposite. There were thousands and thousands of actors. And of all of the people that I ever knew there, and I knew plenty, there's only one other guy who bought, who was working except me. So that school was really a, a losery, horrible, worthless time. <laughs> um, I and, the, and that guy was um, Titus Welliver. Oh yeah. No, Titus, best known probably from Bosch on Amazon, but yeah, great actor. Titus is the only one I ever knew who ever worked that my class. So. I was thinking about kind of getting ready to talk to you today and reading up on, you know, some of your experience and some of your background and stuff. And, you know, one of the things that, that's a recurring theme uh, is, is the importance that, that, you know, growing up in, in Michigan has had for you and, and, and as a place like the way it inspires you. And I was thinking of like, I used to work with uh, George Romero and, and George always talked about Pittsburgh that way. You know, it was such a part of, it was sort of part of the DNA of George's work and of how he felt about his work was so much of it was rooted in being from Pittsburgh. What do you yeah. think is about that? Like, you know, for you, Michigan is a pretty special place to have started making films and become a filmmaker. Yeah, well, um, first of all, you're an outsider by nature. So if you want to be an actor or a painter or a sculptor or basically anything but a person that is mechanically inclined in those arts, you're going to be an outsider. That mixed with um, a sense of working class America in its, you know, first, you know, you're, you're seeing it right on, I think has a great effect on, on people from here. You know, you, you, you know, you're, you know, you don't come home to people in your building, for example, who for example, in LA, who are mostly artists and filmmakers and musicians and screenwriters um, you come back to people who just got off the line, you know, or you come back, you know, maybe nicer neighborhoods, you come back to people who were corporate guys, you know, or, or something, but you don't meet other artists walking around. And so you, there is this great sense of community in that regard. That's, that's the, that's number three, I guess, too, you know, and it just informs a lot of what you do. I think, um, sometimes in a, sometimes in a, uh, maybe, a, a difficult way because not everybody understands what you're doing, but you're certainly for the rest of them left alone to, to be an artist. You, you don't have to come up to anybody's level or be you be particularly uh, unique or try to up one somebody else or try and do what somebody else is doing because nobody else is doing what you're doing. 
So it's, it's a great place creatively. I think that's a lot of it. And I think that's partly why, despite the fact that um, it's not an artistic town by nature, it's turned out an inordinate number of famous musicians, you know, and more than a few, I think, Hollywood people. Bill Mechanic is famous one. Also, Francis Ford Coppola, who incidentally got the name Ford in his middle name because he was born at Henry Ford Hospital, where I was born. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Detroit is born. Yeah. And um, it goes on and on. You know, I, I, I don't know. It's kind of a mystery. Some people think it's in the water here, um, but it's not. We were all here in Detroit raised with... Uh, time-sensitive working-class ideals. You wake up at this hour, you work for these amount of hours, and then you go to bed. Everybody lives their lives like that. Everyone here eats their dinner at 5.30 or 6. You know, California, they eat at 9. Yeah, you know, right, they wake yeah. up at 11. <laughs> yeah. That's just, I'm not saying that's better or worse. I'm just saying that does inform your artistic life. It does get you to kind of get off your butt and go to work on what you're working on. You know, so I, I was lucky to grow up with that environment. It's kind of cool to look at your filmography and see how diverse it is. Like, you know, I mean, I think people probably associate most with genre projects. And this is a genre podcast, so we're kind of focused on that. But you have done a lot of different stuff, um, you know, which is, I think, a lot of actors, you know, worry about things like typecasting and getting stuck doing one kind of thing or whatever. But, it, you know, it doesn't look like you've had a lot of reason to worry about that. But would you say that horror was something that you sort of chose or did you just sort of find yourself doing it and enjoy it? It's both. Um, when I got to Hollywood in the late 1980s, horror was something that actors didn't want to be known for. In fact, it was an embarrassment to have it on their own resumes. Uh, it's nothing like it is today. Every major star is doing horror now, but it was not like that. And so being a lover of the genre, when I went in there, um, when an audition would come up for, say, Wes Craven or Toby Hooper or George Romero, um, I was very eager to go in there. And when I did, I knew their movies. Um, you know, I, I knew um, how they got started. And that was a great conversation starter, you know, right. because most actors, they didn't watch it. They didn't want to watch it. It was basically this much better than doing porn. Yeah. And that's how Hollywood felt about it. And in those days, resumes were typed. It's long before IMDb. You know, you type it out just like any office person today. You know, you have a resume, you hand it to the casting director and stuff. And actors would almost always remove horror movies and horror projects from there because it was a black spot on there. Uh, but I kind of embraced it. So I think that was a good place to be because, you know, I... I, uh, I loved it, and um, I didn't mind it on my resume. So years later, it kind of paid off, I guess. And when you were, like, a kid, were, did you watch a lot of horror? Like, did you go to the, the theater and watch horror films? I wasn't allowed to go to really grisly ones when I was very young. But uh, it, it, here in Detroit, we used to have, as every major American city did, a local horror host. Maybe most famously, there's, of course, Vampira. Um, in, I think, New York, but maybe it was Los Angeles, I don't know. But um, we had uh, Sir Graves Ghastly, <laughs> this wacky kind of version of vampire. And, you know, they shot it in a crappy little corner of a studio, black background with a coffin. It was like that. But uh, I would watch on Saturdays all day horror movies, you know, that he would show. 
and I loved it. I kind of fell in love with the genre like that, you know, plus all the pulp novels we would get as kids. You know, I used to read um, all the time, uh, Vault of Horror, Vault of Terror. I just loved it. I was kind of obsessed. I liked them more than I liked superhero comic books, which I, I liked okay. They were fine, but I would always go back to those stories. They were always much more interesting to me. And for some reason, my parents, while they wouldn't let me see the movies, I read these comics that, that were six times as grisly. <laughs> you know, there was the evisceration left, right, and center in those. So I remember when I was a kid, my uh, my mom one day picking up it was like a it was like an early Dark Horse comic or something like that, and she was looking through it and it had like nudity and tons of gore and stuff. And she was like, "Yeah, no, that's what was in these." I think she thought they were like you know Captain America comics, but of course, yeah, they no, they're they're much different. They're you know they're their own kind of you know animal. Yeah, I remember sort of pleading my case that they had sort of social value because so many of them were like these morality tales right i mean the tales from the crypt ec comic stuff was always like if you do something bad you know the monster the ghoul you'll you'll get your your comeuppance and i remember sort of pitching that as why these were okay for me to read and it actually worked they were like okay i guess it has some value then so that's, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the bad guy gets yeah the end, so it's okay um do you remember like the first horror movie you saw that like really scared you silly like where you were like this i'm terrified you get nightmares all that stuff um yeah i do remember there was uh um as a, on sir graves ghastly they had well first of all i suppose the one i can remember though i had seen some before the one that really struck me was um robert wise's the haunting yeah and it you know it, it, it was you know in those days it was a kind of a shitty print you know, it looked like it had been run through the projector 550 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was incredibly impressive. And, and it really frightened me that because there were little kids like I was going through all that. And they were evil and bad. I guess ones with, you know, kids I could identify with really scared me the most. The other one was um, the other one was the bad seed from I think it was maybe 57, I want to say, or 58, maybe it was early 60s. Uh, that was really scary. That was because if you look at this movie, all kinds of horrible things happen to everyone f from the point of view of this little girl, this very cruel little girl. But there's no gore in it. There's no blood. Right. Yeah. There's no body parts chopped up. It simply was absolutely gripping and terrifying. So those two movies I can remember the most, I think. And who were some of your kind of acting sort of heroes or, or influences at a, at a younger age? Yeah, well, that's one thing that really kind of brought me into being wanting to be a character actor as opposed to a leading man. Um, when I was coming up, you know, as a little kid, you know, 10, 11 years old, this would have been the late 1970s. Um, stars of that day were uh, Christopher Reeve, um, Ryan O'Neill. Um, I'd say uh, Lee Majors, who I later got to work with, which was a joy. Um, but all those guys, you know, they were very manly. They were very tall. They were handsome guys. Um, and I couldn't, I, you know, I, it just didn't interest me that much. But along in that same period, in these old movies I would see were guys like Struther Martin, who's just so magnetic. He was so, he's, yeah. he's a very, very unattractive man. <laughs> he is not attractive, I think, by anybody's standards. 
but he could grip an audience like that. And I was yeah. like, wow, you know, and another guy who I was very impressed with was uh, Bill McKinney. I don't know if you know Bill McKinney yeah. is, yeah. Bill, Bill McKinney, yeah. So one of the great, uh, you know, character actors of the 70s, 60s, 70s, and then ultimately early 80s. Um, and those guys were, were just, you know, I would imitate those guys. I just thought they were wildly weird, you know. And as I got older, you know, it, it, it was all working out good. And though I had some pause in the 1990s as a character actor, because both of those guys wound up dying in most depressing and terrible. They both wound up alone, <laughs> forgotten, right. you know, and dismissed. But I thought, well, if that's my fate, then that's my fate because I really want this really bad. So, yeah, I remember when I was, you know, I started out wanting to pursue a career as a, as a stage actor, then found out, of course, that you couldn't make a living doing that. But, but it was yeah. my first passion was the theater. And, um, you know, as a young kid that my hero actor was Donald Pleasance. And I used oh, to, sure. yeah, and I would carry, I was sort of obsessive about it. I watched like everything I could get my hands on as I studied it. And, you know, I, I think it was that thing of like, if you were Donald Pleasance or an actor like that, like the character actors you're talking about, I think you kind of got to play more. I think those guys got to have more fun, I think, than the leading man guys who kind of were usually strapped with being primarily then reactionary characters. Something happens and they respond. Still. Yeah, nothing is nothing has changed. That that, but then it's not really. I would argue the point, the uh, rather the malady of the the age, but rather it's the condition of the drama itself. It's just how it right. works. Yeah, it's how you write. It's how you write things. You know, you have the a, a person. Of course, it's the journey. You know, the classic Joseph Campbell journey concept, and this guy has to go on an adventure, and that's the only thing he ever does is to so make that decision. And once he starts walking on that adventure. All kinds of things happen to him. And in movies, the things that happen to him are the character actors, typically, and the love interest, too. And But, um, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's infinitely more interesting. And I've been very lucky in my career in that I've gotten to play some very interesting ones. But I've never been at a point in my career where I've gotten more things to do that I feel are commensurate with my personality than uh, most recently. Right. And why do you think that is? Well, my face caught up with, you know, my heart and head. <laughs> right, right. You know, some people get older and then they say, oh, you know, I've my heart's so young and my mind's so young. What happened? And if you're an actor and that happens to you, you know, it's, it's death. Right. You know, I had sort of the Benjamin Button effect, though, with regard to that, that, you know, I, I, I was always more comfortable hanging out with older people. And, you know, and I guess I maybe had a, for lack of a better term, an old soul. I don't know how else to describe it. So finally, when my face and body caught up with my mind and heart, uh, you know, it was sort of like, you know, it all matched, you know? Right. I had a friend who's he's not like much of a movie buff, only watched old movies. I, I mentioned, this was a while back, we were talking about something, that one of the, a film that you had done. And and my friend said, yeah, he reminds me of like a better looking Peter Lorre. <laughs> Well, I suppose that's a compliment. Yeah, I think so. I think that's so. A compliment, I mean, you know, I, I do. Yeah, I do have a very unusual face. I mean, it's very. I, I, that's a good thing. You know, I grew up with a very distinctive face. What a great actor! Like so much. Yeah, and I think made all the more, you know, deep and meaningful because he had a harrowing and horrifying time getting out of Europe during World War II, yeah. being Jewish, and Warner's took him because he was a big star. 
for a while in Germany, I think he got, I think he was really, he, he was a silent film star, but got worldwide acclaim uh, on Fritz Lang's M. Yeah, which is a masterpiece. Which is a masterpiece, and it's sort of the first, it's not the first sound movie, but it is the first sound movie with a monologue. Right. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That, that, that Peter Laurie delivers. It's the only really, just very much like the jazz singer in America, two years before that. It's a silent movie, but Al Jolson does a song. Right. Sync to music, which shocked audiences. Like, oh my God, it's a guy singing. Yeah. Um, and in a like manner, in M, it's a silent movie. Except there's a middle portion where Peter Laurie gives a long monologue to this group of strange, mysterious people that have all uh, are all giving him a trial. Uh, and he is a bad guy in the movie, but they're tr- and he's and uh, he gives a long monologue. The monologue was so obviously a thinly veiled anti-Nazi right uh, monologue within that movie that when. Um, the Nazis finally did get some power. They went, okay, let's see. Who do we... Oh, yeah, there we go. That guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Peter Lloyd had to run. And I think that probably had a great effect on his, you know, being a character. But I think, you know, the more the more bruised we are, uh, especially as these kind of actors, the, the better off we, uh, we are, I, I feel. You know, it just makes you more interesting, you know. Well, and I think, too, it's one of those things where people who don't know the genre or or sort of the show business the, the behind the scenes filmmaking portion of the work with people who have certain assumptions i think about the kind of people that would make movies where people get chopped up and stuff and so one of the questions and you've probably gotten this too is like are are they very dark are they very serious and i always am explaining to people that it's the opposite. Most of the guys that I knew, like we talked a bit about sort of some of the masters of horror, like Craven and Hooper. These were really nice. They're lovely, nice people. You know what I mean? George Romero was one of the funniest, nicest people I knew. Um, uh, they're all, yes, and uh, gentle. Strangely. Yeah. Intellectual, gentle types. Uh, Wes, Wes Craven, I remember very well, was, uh, I couldn't believe that was a guy that had directed Last House on the Left. Right. And when I met him, he he had the demeanor, voice, and dress of a two-year college professor. Yeah, of a junior college professor. That was really, you know, he he just missed the pipe. Yeah. But, yeah. but he had the elbow patches and the checked yeah. shirt, and he really looked like quite a a meek and mild man, which he was not. But but he appeared to be so. I only ever met Wes very briefly once, and uh, and he was so soft-spoken, and as you said, gentle would be the word I would say. I remember he shook my hand, and he was hello, and very quiet, and like, you know, George was a, a much bigger personality, I think. Oh, he was, yeah. George was, he was. had a boisterous laugh, and um, but even like John yeah. Carpenter, who's, you know, uh, who, who's thankfully still with us, like, John has like this very easy, breezy kind of California almost of demeanor about him at this point. And he does. He, yeah, I think he's, you know, I think he carries his, also, I think he carries his, you know, hippiedom somewhere in his heart. Yes. Yeah. Do you think that, that, that you know, when I, I kind of hypothesize about that, I sort of sometimes think that the reason these guys are so kind of meek and gentle is I think when you get your dark stuff out in your work, in your real life, it might help kind of to keep things to allow you to feel a little lighter, a little freer, because you kind of got a lot of that out in what you're doing professionally. Does that, do you sure. think it's truth in that? Yes, I do. Most certainly. Um, 
especially if you're one that ruminates by themselves a great deal. That's essential. Right. Um, I think uh, you could you could get all that dark stuff out uh, if, if you're a thinker in an artistic way. It's a much healthier way to do it. Of course, if you're a boxer, it's a physical way. But any way you can, you know, become more balanced, I guess, for lack of a better term, other than that modern one, it's a good thing. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, you look at a film like uh, Skinner, the, the film that, that you made, I guess, the 90s, right? Which yeah, is, correct. You know, yeah. Pretty dark subject matter, pretty intense role and, and fun to watch because I hadn't seen the film. Thank you. Prior to, to talking to you, I watched it. And I oh, was like, you. wow, it was great to see. One, it was great to see you get to carry a whole film because, you, as you've said, you should, often you, you're in the sort of a character act capacity. And Skinner, it's your show. Uh, yeah, that's right. And it, it was, you know, such a complex character. And, and there's aspects of that film when I was watching, I was thinking, I don't know if they would do this today. You know what I mean? There's kind of oh, a... Oh, no. Yeah. Absolutely not. Not some of those things that were done. Uh, I think that movie would easily be banned today not not because of the gore although that was quite severe it would at least have an uh unrated they couldn't get that thing rated but i think what was in the script you know every person i kill you know it's it's kind of like you know whatever uh what's the name gear frank the uh, original serial killer the one that psycho's based on gear oh ed gein Ed Gein, yeah. Yeah. So it's very much like Ed Gein, you know, he would wear the skins of those people that he killed. That's where all that Silence of the Lamb stuff comes from. It's all right. that. Yeah. Psycho's same, you know. Um, but yeah, imitate, imitating and being, you know, you can do that to some degree today, but you couldn't do what I had done. You know, the woman and uh, African-American guy, you know, that wouldn't, that would not yeah, play. Despite the fact that skin doing it like a voice. I was like, they'd never do that. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be. Absolutely not. No. I mean, it would be considered, even though the character is demented and it clearly insane homicidal maniac. Yeah. Total psychopath. Yeah. It's just kind of where we are, you know, for better and for worse, I suppose. Well, that's, Artistically, that's my question. Do you think, you know, horror, which I think has sort of, it is incumbent on the horror filmmaker for the most part to push boundaries and to, yeah. to be controversial, not just for the sake of it, but to challenge, you know, we're in a, a time that I think some people would think is being somewhat of a darker uh, time in recent years between pandemics and political things. There's a lot going on. Sure. Um, you know, and I think it's kind of the responsibility of the horror filmmaker and certainly guys like Romero, who we've talked about, who who did this, who looked at a time like that and went, OK, this is, you know, as a horror filmmaker, now it's my time to ask certain questions about this, put this under the microscope. Yeah, but I think that we're kind of entering into a bit of an uncomfortable stage for the horror filmmaker of a bit of censorship coming back into play here. Um, yes. And in, in, uh, when we were going through the 19 from post World War Two period through I would say the late 1960s was a conservative crush on the film industry. Um, ideological, conservative smashing to the film industry. You can only show this, you know, separate yeah. beds and all that stuff. It was right. quite quite severe. Um, now it's the other way around, but a crush nevertheless from um, perhaps more liberal type sources. But um, no period in artistic history is ever without those kind of limitations. Right. Now we're so in that regard, we're neither living through a better nor a worse period. I think you know it's just a question of how do you break through that and shock audiences? Yeah, 
right? That's sort of the idea. The ramifications on your life and your career will always be severe when you do that. It's just that social mores change and it's your job, if you wish to shock, to find those ceilings and then pop your head out and say, you know, who throws eggs at you? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was fun to see you recently. You did an episode of Creep Show that was sort of I think it meant you played yourself in it. And it was in, in many ways kind of a loving homage to kind of the start of your career and how you got started. And was, you know, yes, it was you very, know, very flattering. It's interesting to me when I was watching that, I was thinking, you know, for me, when I started my career as a filmmaker, which is 27 yeah. years ago now, you know, that there's things, you know, that, that I wish I knew then that I know now, but there's also things that I sort of wish I didn't know now that I, that I, that I kind of blissfully <laughs> helped me then. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes when you're starting your career, not knowing certain things makes you do things that are good for you. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. You know, there's a, there's a great advantage to being ignorant and young. Um, you know enough to know to break the boundaries of your, of your, peers, but you are still too young and dumb to know the ramifications of those actions. Right. And what they- <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's a great place to be. You know, it's a great place to be. The trick, I think, is to be an older actor or a director or writer and do that, right. knowing full well what you're going to get. It's like, sort of like, you know, you shove a big bully when you're a kid because you got a lot of verb and, you know, and because you, you got, I'm going to get that guy and then he socks you right in the face. You're like, well, I just didn't expect that. But the bully got shoved. No one yeah. has shoved a bully. You didn't yeah. know you were going to get punched. You do that two, three more times, you keep getting punched in the face. It's when you get older and you go, I know I'm going to get punched in the face. I think that's where the real challenge comes in. If you can if you can get there, you know, as an artist, I'm just speaking, obviously, metaphorically, not really punching people <laughs> in the face. Ideally not, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's fun, too, to look at sort of, you know, your, and you've had a nice long career and, and, and will continue to. Uh, I hope. Thank you. Fun. I um, hope so. You, you're sort of an ambassador to the genre, I think. You, people have a lot of affection for you just as as yourself, just as, you know, your work, Thank I you. think, but also just you Thank as Ted Ramey as a person people have a lot Thank of affection you. for. And I'm, you know, I was watching a lot of interviews and stuff to prepare to talk with you today. And I, I noticed, though, that there's a certain thing that happens with, with people who, who who stick around doing something long for a well-liked stuff and that you, you kind of... You know, you get asked a lot of the same things in interviews and, and for well, someone sure. who's interviewing you and wanting to try to keep it fresh and fun for you. I thought one way we could do that, sir. Do you know the game Two Truths and a Lie? No, but it sounds like fun. Yeah. So we're going to do that quickly before before you before you have to duck out. So this is interesting. OK, how do we yeah. do that? Two Truths and a Lie is this. So you're going to say you're going to say three statements about yourself. It can be anything you want, but they can't be things you've talked about in another interview. It has to be things that nobody that that is a fan of yours would know. Any, well, you really got my attention now. Okay. Yeah, anything at all, whatever you want it to be. Two of these things will be the truth, and one of them will be a lie. And I have to try and figure out, based on what I know about you, which one isn't true. Two truths and one lie. Let me think about this. I gotta, I gotta come up with my truths and my singular lie. Yeah. Um, and of course, you want on. the lie to sound believable. Like if you tell me you yeah. speak 34 languages, I'd probably pick that one as the one that was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay, here we go. All right, let's do it. Number one, I speak fluent German. Okay. Number two, I rear-ended a cop car and nearly killed the police officer. And number three, um, I have been to... Three countries in Africa. Yeah. One of those isn't true. One of those 
is sorry. Let me change that last one. Hold on. <laughs> You're like, wait, all of those were true. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, let me change that last one uh, to. Um, oh, I know. I can ride a motorcycle. Okay, I'm going to base on that on that particular delivery that the motorcycle one isn't true. Correct. That's not true. <laughs> okay. You're right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you almost killed a cop. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're, you're wrong. No, that is true. So you can't I can ride a motorcycle. You can't speak German. I cannot speak German. No, I I'm, I'm, I'm I can speak it uh, very little. Declining, mm-hmm. but not much. I can understand and ask directions of the train station. And stuff. Uh, in a real conversation, I would have a lot, great deal of trouble. Um, but what is so that is not true. However, what is true is. Um, you nearly um, killed a cop. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It was an because everybody at sixteen is allowed one incredibly stupid thing that almost ruins their lives and everybody around them, and that was mine. I just wasn't paying attention. It was pouring rain. Yeah. Wham! We rented a cop. That was bad. Wow. Was he off duty or was he on duty? On duty. Yeah. Yeah. On wow. duty. How and that you- guy understandably thought I was trying to. That was on purpose. Kill him. Yeah. He thought I was trying to kill him. You know, yeah. like I was like some some criminal who was like trying to kill him. But no, that really happened. And then uh, this guy, though, was awesome. Like this cop who like he could have been in a rage, but he wasn't. He was like, yeah, he just wanted to know, like, are you OK? Like, yeah. dude, yeah. are you OK? Um, Neither of you were hurt? Not really. Amazingly, no, because we, each, you know, he was in those days they had uh, Caprice. Caprice was the kind of car that cops used to drive was a Chevy. And I had the same car. So, no, we were actually OK. Um, but that cop was so cool. It inspired me to be one. And I wanted to be one at first. So I um, when I got out of high school, uh, I took a year of pre-law to be a cop. Oh, wow. So that so that if another youngster like you smashes into you, you could be cool like he was. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, uh, okay. Last question for yeah. you. Uh, I love the core. I think it's so much fun. Um, thank you. Thank yeah, you. I, well, we had, uh, you know, Graham who Resnick, which is how, how you and I were introduced. Uh, you know, I've sure. talked to him a lot about the game and then, uh, Zach Tinker was on the show and we talked about the game, but he's awesome. Zach. He's a lovely, lovely guy. He's so underrated. I don't know why that guy isn't starring in everything. He's such a good-looking kid. He's so talented. He's so funny. Hilarious Um, and very sweet-natured. Like, we had so much fun when he was on the show. He was so... He's such a... uh, He has, like, an infectious positivity, but not that kind of bullshit positivity where it's obnoxious. No, he's genuinely... Yeah. He's a genuinely positive guy. But Zach can kind of do it all, too, you know? I mean, he's... He's uh, he does comedy as well as drama quite well. And I think he was an incredible asset to that game. I mean, he really added so much to it. That was my thing was I was like, this guy is great. And I messaged Graham and was like, who is the actor who plays? Uh, what's his guy? Jacob? Is that his character's name? I want to say? Jacob. Yeah. yeah. I said, who is this guy? He's fucking hilarious. He's great. And Graham was like, oh, that's Zach. You know, you should you should talk to him on your show. And, and, and so he yeah. came on and he was he was great. And he he was he said a lovely thing about you. He said um, he said. Ted Raimi is the kind of guy that you can sit in with like a bar and have a beer with, and he'll just make eye contact with you the whole time and be actually present the way that no one else is. Ted is that kind of guy. And I thought that was sort of <laughs> That's a very nice comp. Isn't that nice? As, as he's a very observant guy too, I suppose too. Anyway, I, I enjoyed watching his performance and um, I've never watched a soap opera in my life, but now I'm going to. Yeah, just to see Zach at work. Yeah. yeah. 
he's that good. Yeah, you know? he's yeah, really he's great. Magnetic actor. I, I, anyway, I hope to see him in a lot more stuff, but he's a young actor and his career's just getting started. I think he's going to be a big, big star. I think so, and I sure hope so. Now, when you did the court, you as an actor, do you, yeah. when you're doing a project like that, so what's, what to me is so different about doing, you know, now this is a game, but but it's still very much I yeah. think your process as an actor is, I would imagine, comparable to a film or a television show. Almost precisely. Well, you prepare and build a character. I imagine all that is more or less the same. It is. Is it is it a different experience though in the sense that when you're doing a game like this and and, and the, there's an interactive component where the, the the you know the player is choosing certain decisions that will influence the, the narrative, where you're kind of having to consider well wait a minute if the player chooses this I've got to think through the arc of my character completely differently so in, in that way I would think it's a little bit more work than doing a feature or a TV show. Yes, you're exactly right. It it is more difficult for precisely that reason, but it was made all the easier by Graham Resnick's script, which made it possible so that every single bifurcation uh, that a player might make with regard to the character, you know, good, bad, evasive, whatever, um, was so well planned out in all of the dialogue that if you got lost as an actor, which we would frequently because we shot so many versions every day, you know, um, and Graham said the pandemic really nailed you guys while you were making this. It was, uh, it was really difficult. Yeah. It made it very, very challenging. We couldn't be in the same room and only four actors could be present at a time. It was a pain in the ass yeah. in that regard. But, um, anyhow, that script really was so cohesive in every single path that it took that if, if you got completely lost, if you just said the lines, you could get away with it pretty well, you know? So um, there was one or two times where we were going so fast and so hard and doing so many changes that I was absolutely lost. And I just sort of went, okay, I'm just going to read the dialogue and watch my fellow actors, who in this case was Siobhan Williams, who is such an amazing actor, that girl. She's amazing. Yeah. And so she's... um, so well seasoned and so well trained that uh when i kind of got lost she would always be there to go she'd always do her stuff you know just how it should be done so i was very lucky to have her there frankly and the director what uh will byers is that is is that uh biles biles um you know it was the process for you with him you know the director actor relationship was that was that more or less the same or did he have to work with you guys differently than you would on on something like a feature or show no, as far as the director-actor relationship, it was just the same. Okay. Um, it really was just the same. And um, Will's, a, Will's a great director because um, he's one of those kind of directors that works very subtly. He's very much in the minority in that regard. I'm not saying one way is better than another. But most directors will, of course, be very big and very bold and vociferous in letting you know, this did not work or this did, you know, um, with Will... You would go about your day thinking, oh, that director really hardly got, you know, really, I guess I must be doing an awesome job because that director hardly gave me a note. And then you think about it and you realize very subtly he was kind of guiding you. Right. You know, sort of, he sort of, he's through, it was very interesting. And I, I think, I think because of that, I, I think the performances were really enhanced by that style. I have to say, like, you know, you know I've played quite a few. I'm kind of a gamer and, 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 and I've played, you know, all the other supermassive games like Until Dawn and stuff. Like, but one of the things that really stood out to me about this game was the the performances. You know, all, I think all the other games have had a lot of great actors. But the, but but, you know, this this game not only has yourself and the great Lance Henriksen, who's, you know, yes. amazing. Um, 
I love Lance. Uh, he's so Me too. Great. That was my only complaint about the game. I said to Graham when it was finished, I was like, more Lance, more Lynn. That was the only complaint I had. But Graham told me that that was a pandemic thing that, that again, it was limiting on the schedule and, you know, all that shit. Yes, it was challenging. And um, some scenes, not many, but some were shot without the other actor present because we simply couldn't have all of those people in one room together. Yeah. So that was that was disappointing. But um, but it still wound up working seamlessly, you know, because, you know, Will is so good with lighting and matching those cuts back and forth yeah. really was was as uh, well, you know, was it's a magic trick. Have, you, magic have trick. you gotten to play the game much? Yes, uh, I have. Well, I've, I've just got a new Xbox. Nice. So I just started because I used to have this old Xbox 360. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, you couldn't play it. <laughs> uh, sorry, I got a new PlayStation, not Xbox. New PlayStation, so, so yeah. It's, it's trying to learn how to, it's brand new, you know. I'm yeah. 15 years kind of late in figuring it out. So yeah. it's, it's a lot to learn. So have you gotten a chance to sort of guide your, your character through the game a bit? Yes, I kept killing myself, however. I'm not very good at getting through the game. I would blow my face off a lot. And uh, yeah, I get myself killed. I kept trying, well, you know, I want to play, you know, I, I thought when I played, like, oh, I'm just going to make myself live. Yeah. But that's no fun because, you know, you really start to feel for the camp counselors and you want to sure. try and make your favorites, you well, know, your, survive. Your nuts. character's so. tricky, though, because he's kind of like, he's not really a bad guy, per se. Ish, no, I guess he's he's ominous yeah. for a while. But the more we learn yes. about him, there's a sympathetic quality to your character. Yes, Graham wrote that in and it it, uh, it works quite well. I think it really was very interesting to play because it's a hard thing to pull off to have some a, a character who would lock two young people up in an abandoned jail cell for months. But still, eventually you wound up feeling sympathy for him. Yeah. So that is an incredible writing trick. And I think very few people could pull that off. No, it's true. It's like one of those things where like by the end of the game, like, you know, it's an interesting thing for me uh, when I was playing the game and I've played it through a couple of times now when Zach was coming on then for you to come on because my yeah. objective becomes different. When it was Zach, I was like, I've got to keep him alive as long as possible. So I see as much of his performance as possible because I got to talk to this guy. Right. So the same with having you on, I was like, I want to see as much of your character's arc as I possibly can. Yes. So that, you know, when I'm talking to you, I've, I've seen a lot of your performance because if you died early on, I'd be like, shit, I need to start from the beginning so it was very intense playthrough for me trying to keep you and zach alive to talk to you on the podcast i was very so it made it that much more suspenseful because i'm <laughs> yeah. like if ted dies here i gotta start this thing for the fucking beginning so i can see the full arc that he's got with this character and i think i did end up getting you killed but right at the end yeah yeah so that i could keep the main character alive. <laughs> well you kind of deserved it at that point it was kind of like she goes or you go, and she's badass. I had to keep her alive. I just had sure, to gotta keep Laura alive. She's awesome. Last question for you, Ted. Uh, sure. Did you did, were you did you go camping when you were a kid? Were you a kid? No, you never went camping. No? I still never. have not gone yet. It's just one of those things I missed. You know, uh, don't know how I missed it growing up in Michigan. In Michigan, like I did. you know, there's a lot of camping in that surrounding area. I would think tons. Yeah, tons. But I don't know. I just missed it. I never went camping. I guess I don't know. Probably more interested in reading and watching horror movies and, you know, getting into trouble outside. Being a Gen Xer, that's what we did. Smashing into cop cars and causing we, trouble. Yeah, ramming cop cars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I read a review for the game recently where they went through and they talked about how great the game was. And then they talked about just getting the opportunity to be in a game opposite the legend Ted Raimi. So, oh, well, isn't that nice? Thank you. 
when I want to, I want to say I've felt a similar experience getting to chat with you today. I'm, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. So thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Kevin Lane spill your guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane spill your guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork created by Matthew Terrian. Our supervising producer is Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, Retail cashiers, unattended children, that hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>